It's good to have you here this morning. I have been a follower of Jesus for a little over 10 years now, and I've dedicated the last decade to learn as much as I can about this man named Jesus in this book called The Bible. And the reason I love Jesus and I love this book called The Bible so much is because it never ceases to surprise me and challenge me. Somebody once told me the Bible, in a lot of ways, is like the ocean. It has parts shallow enough that children can play, but parts so deep that man cannot even fathom. In this section this morning, I believe is one of those parts. And it begins with a strange conversation with these people called the Pharisees about a coin. This coin, in fact. Well... There we go. My thing didn't, there we go. Okay, this coin, in fact, there we go. <clears throat> now, this was the average daily wage in Palestine during the time of Jesus. A denarius was a Roman silver co- coin bearing the semi-divine bust of Siberius, Tiberius Caesar. And on the abbreviated outside, there's some Latin inscriptions, abbreviated version, and it reads the words, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the back side is a woman. This is Tiberius' mother, Livia, with the Latin inscription, High Priest. An extremely offensive coin. If you're a monotheistic Jew, living in Jerusalem, standing in one of the most holy places, the temple, one of the most, or the most modern way I can try to describe this coin and how offensive it is, it'd be as if, our government decided on the back of the quarter or the dollar bill to put something like the pentagram. Knowing the majority of people that live in America at least claim to be Christian and not caring, and putting that on there, and you having to carry that coin around and make purchases with it and even bring it into this space and offer that coin up to God. It was a daily reminder to the Jews of the world that hated their foundational beliefs. And so the religious leaders asked Jesus, right, how should they treat taxes and this coin and the system that it finds itself in? They're trying to get a rise out of Jesus, like, Jesus, pick a side. Do we go with the Romans and pay the taxes, or do we go with the Jews and deny it? They're trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus says something, and throws a curveball at them, and he says something so profound and so significant that it reminds me every time that I read it that Jesus is not just some normal human being. Whose inscription is on the coin, Jesus asks. Caesar's, they respond. Ah, yes, okay. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Right? Like, what are you supposed to do with that? Like, give to God what is, like, I understand give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? That's his coin, pay your taxes, be a good citizen. I get that, but give to God what is God's. Like, what does that mean? How do I do that? And the answer to that question is so profound and significant and sincere that Tracy and I decided that we needed to actually spend two weeks trying to answer it justly. To answer that question, we have to continue reading. See, Mark, he has structured this very strategically. We have three conversations, one starting off with the Pharisees, the one we just read, one of the religious groups, and then the next conversation where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning is with the Sadducees, another religious group, and then next week, Tracy's going to talk about a conversation with the scribes, moving down the line of the religious leaders of the time, and all along the way, Jesus is going to blow minds and paradigms as he has these difficult conversations. 
So, without further ado, let's read our section this morning. Mark chapter 12, verse 18, verse 27. And the Sadducees, they came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. And then the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they all rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither will marry nor be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. For, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the living. You are quite wrong. I love that ending by Jesus. Imagine for a moment, just a moment, I want you to imagine that you are in the shoes of Jesus' closest followers. I want you to imagine you've been watching Jesus launch this kingdom movement up in Galilee for a few years now. It's, it's not a big movement, but it's gained some press, far more than you could ever imagine it. And one day, Jesus, he decides that he's going to march into the capital as if he's the king, and he's going to go into the most public space, and he's going to talk to some of the most powerful people, and he's going to have difficult conversations about a kingdom and a king to come. Like, what would motivate Jesus to do such a thing? Like, this is absolutely nuts. Like, I can't, it would be as if, like, we here in Vero Beach decided we wanted to take down our government, and so we decided we're going to march into the capital city, into the White House itself, and we're going to try to do it on our own. Like, it's so ridiculous, I can't even give an example of how crazy this is. Like, what motivates Jesus to do such a thing, to continually press the dangerous button? What is he thinking? And I think, in part, it's his hope of the resurrection. Now, that phrase might not mean anything to you right now. But I hope by the end of this morning it will. It's a hope that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that's to come, and the kingdom that is here in the flesh is going to do something. God is doing something in this moment. And it's so significant that even death and murder cannot stop what God is doing. That is Jesus' hope. And so Jesus, he enters into this debate with religious leaders, but specifically with the Sadducees about the, the future hope of the world. And perhaps we don't catch that. Perhaps we read stories like this about a man and a woman and seven men and being married and dying and who she can be married to. We read stories like this and we don't think of the resurrection because we've drifted so far away from that hope. We think of the word like resurrection and life after death and heaven even. And we think of it in abstract terms because all we've ever known is life. How can we even imagine a world after this one and what's supposed to happen to my body in the entire universe after it's done. But Jesus' hope for the resurrection was at the core of his entire purpose. This was why he was here. And Jesus' hope was this. 
His hope was that human evil and death and the tragedy of the world, that none of those things, they get the final word. That was Jesus' hope. And he alludes to that hope all throughout his ministry and his teachings, through parables and stories and little phrases. In fact, one of my favorite phrases that Jesus has, it's a one sentence about the future of all things. It's actually found in a different gospel, Matthew. One of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Many people think that Matthew was actually written after Mark. In fact, some scholars even debate if Mark's gospel, if Matthew used Mark's gospel to help write his gospel. And in Matthew, he quotes Jesus saying this, Jesus said to them, his closest disciples, truly I say to you at the important word, renewal of all things when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Now, write down Matthew 19, 28, take it home with you, read this verse in its context because it'll blow your mind what Jesus is talking about here. But I want to focus in on one word, renewal, because that's a really significant word because it actually only appears two times in your entire New Testament, obviously one time here. And the word in Greek is actually a compound word. We have these in English, think of like butterfly, two words brought together. Butterfly is not a fly made out of butter. It's two words brought together to make a new concept and word entirely. Polyne in Greek means new. And genesie, the second half of the word, is where we get the word genesis from. And it means beginning or birth. Put them together, quite literally, you have the phrase new birth. Woo! There's our, uh, that's our Bible class lesson for today. I don't know if you're going to remember any of that, but it's extremely significant. Because that's the word that Jesus decides to use to talk about the future of all things. So according to Jesus, the story of the world and the story of the universe is a new birth. And human beings, we are a part of that creation. We are a part of what God wants to do and is doing in the world, and we also must be born again. Wait a second, I've heard that before. Oh yeah, John chapter 3, a rabbi hears about Jesus starting this kingdom movement, and he decides he wants to be a part of it too, and his name is Nicodemus, and he approaches Jesus at night, and he says, Jesus, I want in. Stamp my name on it. Write my name on the line. I want in on this kingdom movement, what you're doing in the world, and what does Jesus tell him? You must be what? Born again. Do you remember? So Jesus' vision of the world Jesus' vision of the world is that our current living situation is not the end of the world. That he himself is God, walking with his broken people, and he's bringing about a hope that humans could never imagine to have on their own. That's the story Jesus sees himself a part of. And so this conversation with the Sadducees, it's not a conversation about a man and a woman or seven men and one woman, and what man this woman's going to be married to after they all die. But that's said a cloak over the real question. And it's a question instead of what hope does Jesus have for the future? And so the Sadducees, they build this ridiculous soap opera question. And Jesus, being the master of all kinds of conversations like this, he answers them bluntly. But first, before we talk about Jesus' response, I want to talk about the Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? Why do they have such a weird name? What do they believe? Like, what, what are they about? Why are they picking a fight? And why is the resurrection so important to them? 
Right, the best analogy I have for the Sadducees, in a modern context, are a lot like the Church of Scientology, the American Church of Scientology. That while there's very few people who are actually a part of the group, it just so happens that the few people that are are extremely wealthy and extremely popular. Meaning that even though there are a few, they have a, the capability of having a meaningful impact on society. Meaningful, not necessarily meaning good, but meaningful nonetheless. And here's what we know about the Sadducees. Uh, two main things that we know about them. There's a lot of things to know about them, but here are the two big ones. One is they believe that the Torah is the only sacred book of, the, of Scripture. The only sacred Scripture, the Torah. Torah being the first five books of your Bible. So mine ends at 207. I'll go to page 207. I can rip out the rest of it because it's not needed, according to the Sadducees. Just stick to the Torah, the first five books. And the second thing is extremely important. They do not believe in a rebirth, a renewal, or a resurrection of anything. When you die, when your body dies, your soul dies with it. When you're put in the ground, that is all that's left of you. There is no hope of something after life. So, um, you have to promise to laugh, my people in Bible class. Um, if you want to remember the Sadducees, there's an easy way to do it, a little Bible joke. Uh, the Sadducees, they're sad, you see, because they have no hope for the future. Thank you. For <clears throat> so how convenient, how convenient, though, that the people at the top, the people who, with the most wealth, the people with the most influence are precisely the people who do not believe in a rebirth and a renewal of the universe. How convenient that the people who could afford to deny that kind of theology are in fact the people who do. And they ask Jesus this question that unfortunately we don't have time to dig too deep into, but they ask him this question that's rooted in Deuteronomy 25. And it was a, it was a law that was actually tailored and designed to protect women. Like I said, we don't have time to actually go and back and look at Deuteronomy 25, but I'll give you a little crash course, right? In ancient times, a man and a woman are married. If the husband dies in ancient Israel, the woman is at an extreme risk of losing everything. Her, her money, her, her possessions, her land, everything. And so this law was intact so that if a woman and man are married, husband dies, the woman would then be taken in by the brother of the man, thus also taking in her possessions and taking in her, her land and taking in her influence so that she could continue on. So that whenever she eventually did have children, she could pass those on to her kids. But the Sadducees, they take the system, they take this beautiful thing that was designed to protect and they twist it, and they skew it, and they squeeze it out the other side to get their purpose out of it. And don't we do the same thing? And haven't we done this thing throughout history as humans? That we've taken something, well, we do it on a political and social relational, but we'll just stick with the religious way. We take something as beautiful as the Bible, a book about a faithful, loving God who created a human out of his image, and the human decided to rip away from God and decide its own desires and to, and to chase after its own desires. And God's story is about his faithfulness of trying to reunite those people both with him and with each other. It is a beautiful message of unity and love. And we've taken something that beautiful and humans have used the Bible to promote things such as slavery of a Jesus who says that he will eliminate and liberate the shackles from every, 
enslaved person, and we can use the Bible to condone it or to condone the genocide of a mass group of people just because of their beliefs and their ethnicity. And on a much smaller scale, we do this. Where we take, we go to a church and they do things that we don't like or that make us uncomfortable or that we've never learned or done or practiced ourselves. And we'll take something in scripture that we've been taught and we squeeze it and we twist it to get our purposes out of it. And so Jesus has a twofold response to this hypothetical scenario that the Sadducees have built. And I love it. The first one is, you guys don't know what scripture is about. You don't. You have no idea what scripture is about. If you have no hope of the resurrection, if you can't even imagine life after this, if you have no hope for what's to come, then you are not reading scripture the correct way. You have no idea what scripture says. And the second one is you lack the imagination of God's power. You lack it. You have no conception. You can't even grasp in your mind what God has done, what he's continually doing, and what he's going to do with all things. And so let's break down each of these real quick. Number one, notice, do you notice how Jesus responds in verse 26 to the Sadducees? Look at it. To evince that the resurrection from death is taught, or at least assumed in the Torah, where does he go? Where does he go to argue against the people who believe the Torah is the only sacred scriptures? He goes to the Torah, and he quotes from Exodus 3.6. Moses in the burning bush. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And we read that today like, Jesus, you didn't answer their question. But what Jesus is arguing is that the promises of God are not to the dead men, but they're to living. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead as the Sadducees believe they're dead, with their body and their soul, they're completely gone, then God's promises with them are only limited to the duration of the man's life. And Jesus says that's absolutely ridiculous. God's promises are not bound to human limitations, Jesus claims. God would not pledge himself to the dead unless the dead were to be raised again to life. Jesus' argument for the reality of the resurrection is based on the assumption that once a relationship with God is established, it bears the promise of God that cannot be ended, even in death. Jesus, right? He has a brilliant mind. But his answer, his ultimate answer to the Sadducees would not be in just telling them about a resurrection, but it would be being a resurrection in and of himself. I didn't just come on this earth to tell you about the resurrection of all things, but I'm here to show you. And number two, they lack imagination. Now, the Sadducees find this entire conversation silly. They're, they build this scenario thinking that way. They fabricate this, this instant in which somebody dies, and they just wake up and they continue their life as if they hadn't even died. And if we're honest, many of us might think the same thing too. I die from this world, and I wake up, and maybe I look the same. Maybe I even dress the same. I have the same relationships. There's just a nice glow around me because I'm angelic or something. So we have to stop. We have to stop right here. And we have to talk about heaven and what happens after we die. Now, Christians, we often find ourselves wrestling with this question, right? What's heaven like? What's going to happen after I die? What's it going to look like? And without a doubt, many of us in this room are asking that question. What's it going to look like? But the reality is, is that the Bible actually spends very little time focusing on that. But here, lucky for us, is one of the places where he does. 
And he says something like, you will be like the angels. I remember reading that as a kid, and I'm thinking, oh, sweet. I'm going to die, and I'm going to get some wings and a nice robe. I'm going to be able to play a trumpet and some long hair, nice gold lace. Like, it's going to be great. Right, get that out of your head. <laughs> I would say I don't know where that comes from, but it comes from 18th century Renaissance paintings. Right, that's where that comes from. So get it out of your head. Plus, Jesus says you will be like the angels. You're not going to be the angels. Okay, what it, instead, I think Jesus is cueing us in on is that God's realm and our realm are actually a lot closer than we might have realized. And this idea actually goes all the way back to the first pages of your Bible. In Genesis, when God first created garden, the Garden of Eden, where heaven and earth quite literally existed within the same realm, where God could walk with humankind side by side in the garden. I once read an author, and they asked the question, can you even imagine the conversations that humankind and God had walking through that garden? Can you even imagine that paradise when God and humans could walk side by side again? That was God's intention. But one day, God went into the garden, and man wasn't there. And he was hiding. And something went terribly wrong in the story. And it didn't go wrong in the way God set up the deal. But something went wrong inside of me. And humans began doing this thing called sin, where they began choosing to define good and evil by their terms versus allowing God to establish it for them. And because of it, earth became a ruined and imperfect place that we live in and we experience every day. In your Bible, this book right here, your Bible is a long history of a loving, faithful God and the, the complicated relationship that loving, faithful God has with a stubborn, disobedient human. In temples and animal sacrifices throughout history, these were all temporary solutions to reunite God's realm and the earthly realm once again, but God's permanent solution was found in Jesus, in himself. And everywhere that Christ visited, he brought little pieces of heaven with him. And this was so repulsive and so offensive to humankind that they decided to kill him. In Jesus' death, it created a permanent access point between these two realms, which are still very far apart from each other, but now through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus overlap, and the story is far from over. And Jesus' metaphor for the universe's future, for everything, is to be born again, is rebirth. Something has to radically change here in order for these two realms to overlap and be united once again. And so Jesus, he uses this metaphor of what happens, what has to happen to humans in order for us to inhabit that new world, and he uses this language of birth. We have to be born again. So what I want to do for the remainder of this morning is I want to carry that metaphor as far as it goes and allow Jesus' metaphor to explain what that new hope what that hope and what that resurrection is going to look like. And so Jesus uses this metaphor, which I imagine most everybody in this room has seen something like this image before. This is Carnegie's theory of human development. Now, a bunch of you are about to go, or maybe you have already gone and seen the new Star Wars that's in theater. If you haven't gone, you will go. 
maybe, I don't know, if you do go, you're going to sit in a theater, in a movie, in a world for a couple of hours. And it's a world that is fascinating and exciting and remarkable. But folks, if you stare at this image long enough, you will recognize that our world is even stranger and more remarkable than a galaxy far, far away. I mean, stop. Look at this image. Marvel at it for just a moment. That image for every single one of us in this room, that was you. Just allow your brain to spin around that for a moment. You have not always been the you that you are. When you existed in that form, was that you? Absolutely. That was you. Now, is that the same you that is here today? I mean, yes, no, right? Your cells have died, they've multiplied, they've, they've grown into something different, but it's still you, right? Right? Here's my point, is that there's always been stages of transformation that have radically changed you. This is not new, but it's always been you. Right? So let's, let's take this, let's keep going with this metaphor. So let's just imagine this final stage you, the 23-week-old you, right here, the last one. If you had the ability to talk to that version of you, how would you go about explaining and expressing to them the experience of a first kiss? Or, or Star Wars, or the taste of pizza. <laughs> like, how do you go about explaining it? You can't. There, there's no framework. There's no categories. There's just no way you can explain. It's a completely different world in there, in there, than it is out here. Now, there will be things that do carry on from stage to stage, though. Everybody take a look at this image, and then take a deep breath with me. <sighs> now, we all used our lungs. Now, when in this stage did your lungs begin to develop? Experts tell me it's somewhere in the four to five week range. So somewhere in like the 10 to 13, right there in the middle column. At that version of you, the cell structures that would create the organ called your lung began coming together. Guys, marvel with me. Like, this is amazing. Your lungs were breathing in, inhaling, and exhaling at that stage of your life. But here's the even more remarkable part. What were you breathing in? Because it wasn't air. For a time of every one of our existences, our lungs were able to take in water and take out water, and we were able to exist. It had nothing to do with oxygen, but our lungs were still capable of doing it. But something happened. At the moment of your birth, a radical transformation occurred. You emerged from your liquid home, and your lungs took your first breath of that cold, dry air. And what did you think of it? You hated it. <laughs> because you had no framework. You had no idea what this thing was. But in that moment, your lungs switched over, and now all they can do is take in air. Is that not amazing? And let's take it just one step further. We all had this fleshly tube connecting to our stomach. I hope I'm not telling y'all anything new. <laughs> you had this fleshly tube connected to your stomach, and it was completely vital for your oxygen, for your nutrients, for everything you needed to literally grow and form, that tube was needed. And in a moment of your existence, at the moment of your birth, that thing became completely unnecessary to you. And they cut it off, and they threw it away. In just a few moments, every one of our existences 
in, in just a moment of every one of our existences, our bodies underwent a radical transformation. And I think, I think, that's why Jesus uses this metaphor to explain the future of all things and what's going to happen to our universe and to us. Was it the same you after birth? Yeah, of course it was you. But it was a new, transformed you that was both different and the same all at the same time. See, Jesus is extremely intentional with his metaphors. And this metaphor, being reborn, gives us a category for what he believes the new creation and resurrection is going to look like of after we die, what's going to happen. There's going to be some things that we can't even imagine, like going to the 23-week-year-old self and tell 23-week-old self. I have to make sure I don't put a year in there. 23-week-old self and try to explain Star Wars and pizza. You just can't do it. It's a different world. You can't explain it. We can't explain everything that's going to happen, so stop trying. It's just not going to work. But there's going to be other things that carry over from stage to stage. There might even be things inside of us now that we don't even know the purpose of them, but at the moment of our resurrection, they will click on and their purpose will be fully realized. Like the lungs who took in water and out water and at the moment of your birth could take in air and you needed that to live. There are some things in each of us who, that will be transformed into something completely new. And then finally, there's going to be other things that will no longer be useful in the new creation like a tube that gave us everything we needed to live that was cut off at our birth, there are some things that will be cut off and removed entirely because they're no longer going to be needed. And marriage, marriage seems to be one of those things. So what did Jesus think about marriage? What does it mean that there might not be any marriage in the life to come? And many of you who've been married twice as long that I've been alive, you might be looking at your spouse thinking, well, I don't want the new resurrection because I can't imagine not being married to you. So what does Jesus mean here? And unfortunately, we don't have time to answer that. But here's what I'm going to do. Because we don't have time this morning to answer that question, I want to be respectful of your time. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to post a live video on our Facebook page, Vero Beach, or Vero Beach Church of Christ, uh, and I'm going to answer that question specifically. What is Jesus talking about in marriage here? Why does he say there might not be marriage? How does that connect? Because I do think it's extremely important. And I do think it might be something that you're questioning now. Um, so just go to Facebook in the morning or later in the afternoon. That video will be there. If you don't have a Facebook, hey, it's okay. It's okay. Look around who you're sitting with, right? One of them probably have a Facebook. Say, hey, let's go get lunch tomorrow and let's watch it together. Problem solved. But let's land the plane this morning. Let's end this morning on a thought. Because it's so amazingly profound that I think you can chew on it for the rest of the day and probably the rest of the week. I want you to get your mind, put your, get into your mind the person or the people you care about the most. If you want to close your eyes and think of them, that's fine. For me, it's my wife, uh, maybe a few close friends. That's about it. <laughs> like, that's about all I got right? I, I only have so much love, like true love, that I can, that can go around, right? So think of the people or the person that you love the most. If you're thinking of somebody, you know that there are moments when your love for that person brings out the best in you. You're compassionate to them when, when they're sick, or when they're hurting. You sacrifice your own wants and desires so that they can be happy. 
You love them unconditionally, even if they hurt you in some way. Like love, it's a remarkable thing when it's done correctly. However, we also know that our love can be conditional. It can be exclusive. It can be biased. That there are some people who might never receive my direct love for whatever reason. And we live in a world where there are what I like to call love handicaps. Where there are some people who might never, who, who will always feel excluded from love. And for Jesus, the biblical story is all about imagining a world where the love handicaps are removed, where there's no longer people who feel excluded from being loved. Right? There's several limits to my love. We've already acknowledged that. <laughs> so instead, we have to imagine a world where those limits are removed entirely. That's what rebirth, that's what this rebirth thing is all about. And that's in part what it means to be and live in the image of God. It's having hope for a world, a hope of a resurrection, of a transformation of me and the entire world that won't look the same, but will be the same me, that will no longer have love handicaps, a world where there will no longer be those who feel excluded from love. It's a new world entirely, and part of living in that image is having hope for that world, is living for that world, is, is trying to reach the future of that world. However, this is no longer a speculation or a dream, according to Jesus, but something that we actually get to participate in today. And next week, Jesus is going to talk about that. And so I'm going to leave that for Tracy. I'm not going to steal your thunder. Right? I'm going to leave that for Tracy to talk about how we can actually participate in that kind, bringing about that kind of world today. But this morning, we're going to take part in a meal. And if you're going to be a server of that meal, you can begin going back and getting that meal ready for us. And we take part of a meal every week. And it's a meal where we eat the symbol of Jesus' love for you through the bread and the cup. And what I want to do this morning is I want to pray that God will reveal to us exactly what each of us needs to hear. That God will break our hearts and that we will recognize and identify our love handicaps that we put on, our, on people, that we put on the world. And that we will begin to imagine a world where those handicaps are removed entirely. And we have a, a hope for that kind of world. And as we take part in this meal, we're taking part in the meal that made it possible, that made that hope possible for each of us. Let's pray. God, open our eyes in this moment. Open our eyes to what you're doing in the world, what you're doing through your church, what you're doing through each of us. And God, there might be people in here who have never heard or have vaguely heard the, your story of coming down into your world and walking with your broken people to redeem them and restore them and to point them to the hope of a future where all of the love handicaps are removed. And so God, for those people in here who need to hear that message and might be hearing it for the first time, may their hearts and their eyes be open to your love. 
May we be willing to accept it openly and allow that transformation begin in our life. Maybe, God, there's some people in here who know your word and know your message, but have been away from it for too long. God, they've desperately sought after the hope of the world, the hope of human, the desires, their desires, their comforts, and they've come out empty-handed every time. God, help us realize that it's the hope of the resurrection, it's the hope of the world to come. That is where our hope lies. And God, finally, there might be people in here who are faithful and are your believers and who love you dearly. And God, as they take this meal, the bread and the cup that symbolize your sacrifice and your love, May it open their eyes to opportunities to take part in your kingdom, in your love movement in this world. To break down barriers, to eliminate handicaps of their love. And to share your peace and your grace and your truth with this world openly. God, we take in this bread and we take in this cup. And knowing that it is for the cleansing of our sins, in all the ways that we've broken our covenant with you. God, forgive us. May we take this meal openly in remembrance of that sacrifice. We say this prayer in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.